This is Dr. Michael Brickey with Ageless Lifestyles, cutting-edge thinking for being youthful at every age. On each program, I interview experts on what it takes to live longer, healthier, and happier. Our feet get a pounding day after day, year after year. Most of us take our feet for granted until problems develop. Then we seek someone like Dr. Brett Ryan Fink, who is co-author of a definitive book on foot care, The Whole Foot Book. Dr. Fink, welcome. Thank you, Dr. Berkey. I'm glad to be on the program. Dr. Fink, I didn't want to introduce you as an orthopedic surgeon because listeners might assume the show was about surgery. And one of the things you write about is that foot surgery usually is not the solution for foot problems. That's exactly right. As a matter of fact, my book is centered around non-operative care, which I think really gets a short shrift as far as treatment, mainly because it's just difficult for doctors to do it. A lot of them are uncomfortable with it. It takes a lot of engaging your patient into developing or buying into the problem, buying into the solution. And unfortunately, non-operative care sometimes takes some time to see results. And that takes a great deal of patience, both from the patient and from the doctor. What types of surgery tend to have the best results? Well, the surgeries that are done for straightforward problems, uh, acute problems, I find that the best results are for problems that are traumatic, like uh, ankle fractures, sometimes for arthritis, if there's no other way. For chronic problems, actually, surgery is not such a good option because Unfortunately, surgery more or less treats the symptom and not the underlying root cause. Were bone spurs one thing that tends to have reasonably good surgery results? Actually, not very well. Let's just kind of define what a bone spur is. A bone spur is something you see on an x-ray. It's not necessarily a diagnosis. Actually, bone spurring is a common part of aging. As a matter of fact, if you look at people's x-rays, Sometimes they have bone spurs present at the places where ligaments and tendons attach, and they really have no symptoms. You took the x-ray for some other problem. Mm -hmm. And sometimes bone spurs are completely non-painful. When people normally talk about bone spurs, they're talking about plantar fasciitis. And the plantar fascia is a ligament on the bottom of the foot, which spans the entire foot from the toes to the heel and it attaches onto the bottom side of the heel bone or the calcaneus. A lot of times calcification develops in that plantar fascia as it attaches onto the calcaneus, and that's what gives the pain. Uh, it is actually the inflammation and the deterioration of the structure itself rather than the bone spur, which is the problem. Interesting. A lot of pain and problems can be improved by improving posture, how do you get people to improve their posture? That's a very good question. The biggest key to that is practice. Whenever you're going down a hallway or something like that, you have to really concentrate on posture. And, and posture involves shifting your center of gravity uh, backward, uh, away from the front of the body. It takes uh, some strength to develop good posture, and I think that exercise is a very important part of that. Uh, especially exercises that involve the abdomen and the back. A physical therapist can very, be very helpful in helping people to learn about good posture, uh, especially a physical therapist that really is interested in that kind of thing. And, and certainly physical therapists vary from in their training in terms of how much they feel that posture is a problem. Uh, 
personally, I think that poor posture is probably one of the key roles in the development of a great number of problems, including plantar fasciitis, Achilles tendonitis, various types of pain in the around the toes. As a matter of fact, I think it is probably a good portion of when people develop a flat foot deformity or acquired flat foot, that a lifetime of poor posture is key to the development of those problems and key to the treatment. So you talked about how poor abdominal muscle tone is part of the problem, and I gather another part of the problem is that we lean forward so much with computers and driving that we're slumping our shoulders and head forward. Yeah, I think that it, it probably is more a problem when someone is standing and walking than so much when they're actually in a car because that, that's really when you're putting the weight on your foot. If you shift your weight forward, then your body has to counteract that in, in some way, and usually it's by shifting the weight from the heel to the front of the foot. I was thinking more of our muscles get used to that slumped forward posture and the, the muscles get kind of tight, and it's after a while it's even hard to get your shoulders back. Sure, and you, and you develop uh, poor conditioning as a part of that. If your spine is allowed to be placed in a position where the muscles are really not active, then your muscles eventually lose their conditioning and they, uh, and they stop really being able to hold and maintain proper posture. Another thing besides posture that can help enormously with foot problems is getting the right shoes. And I gather from the Whole Foot book that the best place to start is being really clear about what your foot problems are and what their special needs are because of those foot problems. Oh, exactly right. I think that one thing that you've got to do is you've got to differentiate between what a healthy foot requires and what a foot that is having foot problems requires. It's my belief that healthy feet really don't require shoes at all. It's Our feet, they have evolved to uh, be adapted to being barefoot. And of course, until the last couple hundred years, almost all of us would have been barefoot for most of our lives. And uh, I think that that is probably the healthiest way for the foot to be. Unfortunately, with Western society, there are things on the ground that might hurt our feet. And uh, culturally, it's just become accepted to wear footwear even when the weather is nice outside. So the healthiest type of footwear for a, a foot that's not having a problem is probably no shoes at all. If you've ever noticed a laborer, you know, as a doctor, certainly I shake a lot of hands during the course of a day, and there's a, there's a wide variation in how tough a hand feels. If you have a laborer, someone that does construction work or something, you'll notice how thick their palms are. However, someone like myself, a doctor or a lawyer or something, their palms are very flexible. Your feet are the same way. If your feet are placed in shoes all day, the skin and the fat within the feet become conditioned to being protected all the time. And this actually decreases the foot's ability to diffuse weight over the over a surface area. The skin on the bottom of the foot gets thin. The bones start to press on the skin. We develop calluses. The stress within our foot is not diffused across a, a wide uh, range. It's more or less concentrated. In that way, the foot becomes less capable of really resisting stress. In the same way, the muscles within our feet, are, when we're barefoot, are constantly adapting to the, the surface that we're walking on. And so in a shoe, your feet do not do as nearly as much of that, and therefore your muscles 
atrophy somewhat. This puts a lot more stress on the ligaments, such as the plantar fascia, and it can cause foot problems. So while a healthy foot, I believe, should be stressed uh, so that it develops proper conditioning, and a sick foot, on the other hand, someone that's already developed a problem, has to be protected. Just like if you were, if you have a fracture, you might be placed in a cast, but you don't keep a cast on forever. You allow that fracture to go back into its normal circumstance later on. A sick foot, such as a foot that has plantar fasciitis, has to be protected until it becomes less symptomatic, and then you can gradually reintroduce activities so that the foot becomes uh, reconditioned again. So uh, with a reasonably healthy foot, it would be a good idea to go barefoot a lot at home and possibly even do some of uh, some exercising barefoot. Sure. If your foot is strong, if you're kind of used to this type of activity, I think that that would be the ideal circumstance. But, you know, unfortunately, a lot of our feet aren't used to that type of thing. And if you're kind of getting into middle age, if you're overweight, if you've had foot problems in the past, you want to ease into that type of shoe wear or that kind of activity or exposing your feet to that kind of stress. Would the same apply to people with high arches or are they better off wearing shoes? I think that any shape of the foot can be strong. A person with a high arch has a little less flexibility and so is prone to certain problems. But a person with a high arch, I think, can have a normal strong foot that, that is just as resilient as, a, as someone with a low arch or a normal arch. So some of the things that most of us don't think about when buying shoes, one of the things you say is, do you have a, a stiff sole or a flexible sole? When, when do we want stiff and when do we want flexible? Well, it, to some extent, it depends on what you're treating. I would have to say for a healthy foot, a flexible sole is good. For a foot that has any of a number of problems, including metatarsal pain, pain in the ball of the foot, or plantar fasciitis, that a, a stiffer sole shoe would be probably better. If you have ankle arthritis or Achilles tendonitis, you know, pain in the back of the heel, then a shoe with a little bit of a heel will probably accommodate the restrictions, the, the pain that you might have by bringing your toes all the way up um, at the end of your step. There are some cases where it would be an advantage not to have heels at all? I think that for the most part, someone with a normal foot should not be wearing a heel. I guess I've got to differentiate between someone that wears an elevated heel and someone that wears the fashionable heels that women sometimes wear. Mm -hmm. I think that uh, to some extent that wearing high heels is a little bit of a dangerous thing. I would not recommend that. But wearing a shoe with a, a little bit of an elevation, half an inch to an inch, I think it can be helpful for certain foot problems. But for a normal healthy foot, for someone that doesn't have those type of foot problems, I don't think it's necessary to add a heel unless that's what they desire. For some reason, they might be self-conscious because of their height and want to wear a heel. I find a lot of women go to heels because of that. They just want to be, they want to have their head in uh, in the same area where everyone else's is. They don't want to feel like they're, they're beneath everyone else. One of the obvious considerations is if any part of the shoe rubs, especially in the toe area, part of that's finding a shoe with a big box in front, part of it's finding a shoe with a removable insert. Sure. And you say they shoes can also be stretched. Right. How do you stretch a shoe? Well, 
let, let's go back to the, your first question, which was that, how do you accommodate foot deformities in the front of the foot, you know, foot mm-hmm. deformities like bunions or hammer toes. And there are a couple of different ways. One is to buy a shoe that more or less closely parallels the shape of your foot, so that if you have a very long second toe, a pointier uh, toe might fit that better. If you have a wider front of the foot, then more of a square boxy end to the shoe would be better. So you really need to find a shoe whose shape fits your foot. After that, other things that you need to look at are, is the compliancy of the material that's made out of. Certainly some leathers, like a patent leather, are very non-compliant. So you, you want to stay away from that if you have very sore feet or if you have numb feet and perhaps rubbing could be dangerous for you, like someone that, with diabetes. As far as other ways of accommodating that, it's quite easy to get a hold of a shoe stretcher. Some of the better shoe stores have them. There's also a, a website that I have absolutely nothing to do with, but the gentleman that runs it is a very nice guy, at uh, www.healingtouch, that's H-E-E-L-I-N-G-T-O-U-C-H.com. He has an assortment of uh, stretchers, which are very reasonably priced. I would say that probably $30 is, is a, a reasonable price to pay for something like that. And what you do is that you just place the stretcher in your shoe the day before you wear it so that the shoe is stretched out and so your foot doesn't actually have to cause the, the shoe to uh, maintain its volume that it had before so that your shoe, foot itself doesn't have to force the shoe into the proper shape. These shoe stretchers a lot of times will have little nubs that you can put on there. So if the problem is a bunion or a hammer toe, you can position this little knob to be in that spot and it will stretch out your shoe. Certainly a more natural material such as leather is going to stretch better than uh, a less compliant material like plastic or a patent leather. One of the things I was amazed and amused at was you even have shoelace tricks for accommodating problem feet. Yeah, there are a couple of things that you can do, and it's a little easier to illustrate this than than to describe it over a podcast. If there are certain tender spots in your foot, you can alter your lacing pattern so that the the laces don't have to crisscross over that area, either by skipping a loop or not uh, lacing it all the way down to the bottom so that you could loosen up the box of the shoe. You could avoid lacing it all the way up to the top if there's a particularly painful spot uh, near the ankle. And sometimes if people are having difficulty with grip straight, you might not choose a shoe with laces. You might go with one with Velcro. Mm-hmm. And the straps can be much looser. Sometimes if you have difficulty finding this, while there are a couple of commercially available shoes with Velcro, a lot of times you can go to a shoe repair shop and have them alter the shoe for you. And a lot of times they can do a lot to things considerably more comfortable. A professional like a prosthetist or a podorthist, a guy that actually professionally changes shoes for people, can also be real helpful. But they're going to be a little bit more expensive than the shoe repair shop. Mm-hmm. And another consideration you mentioned was if you have a problem with turning your ankle too much, uh, sometimes high-top shoes can help. Yeah, there are are a couple of different ways to approach an unstable foot. Uh, One is to basically build up the shoe so that it does not allow the foot to turn. The other is to actually go the other way to make the shoe more flexible. And the reason that that can be helpful is because 
like I said before, the foot naturally is able to accommodate the surfaces. Unfortunately, a, a rigid sole shoe kind of hurts you in that if you step on a rock or an uneven place, it will tend to tilt the entire foot, and that can start a cascade of the foot rolling over the side that's almost like a slinky going over a step. It just seems mm. to keep going. So I guess there are two ways of approaching that. One is to build the shoe up to prevent you from spraining it, and the other is to actually allow the foot to accommodate. I think either way is fine. You just have to find what works for you. A lot of times there's a shoe company called Ectio, that's E-K-T-I-O, that makes a very good basketball shoe that, that is actually built to attach more solidly to the foot. A lot of times what happens to the foot is if it's not closely and firmly attached to the shoe, it can roll within the shoe, causing the foot to be unstable inside of the shoe. Uh, and they seem to have approached it that way, and they do a very good job. The other way is that you can go towards the barefoot running shoes, like the Vibrium Five Fingers, or certainly uh, I think almost every shoe company has a minimalist running shoe that can be a little bit more compliant and I think can help people with ankle instability. What's your take on the rocker-soled shoes like the MBTs? Well, a, a rocker-soled shoe is a, a way of protecting the foot. You know, unfortunately, through their advertising, a lot of the makers of rocker-soled shoes have made some claims that were I think that most doctors found them fairly preposterous when they made them. <laughs> they actually uh, more or less claim that you would lose weight from wearing these shoes mm -hmm. and that it would firm and tone your, your rear end, which, uh, of course, isn't true. It does, however, sometimes change the way that you walk so that you'll get some pain from the changes in the way that you walk in your buttock. I, I guess that probably is why they made these claims is because you would get these kind of sharp pains in the back of your rear end. I think that rocker sole shoes can be quite helpful for things like plantar fasciitis or forefoot metatarsal pain or midfoot arthritis. They are actually the shoe that I recommend for people that have those problems and really don't have a foot that you can ever condition to the point that you can get them into a more normal shoe. One of your advice was that uh, when you're buying shoes, go in the evening because your feet are most swollen then. Oh, yeah. I, I think that there is a, a certain way to buy shoes. First of all, if you have uh, a shoe that, that or a foot that is hard to fit, it's probably a good idea to go to a shoe store that have people that are better at fitting shoes, that are professionals. Uh, and so, you know, many shoe stores cater to that type of thing. They have people that are certified. Now, uh, being Becoming a certified shoe fitter is not an extensive process, but it does show that the person that's fitting your shoes is taking their job seriously, which in some shoe stores you don't get that. The person that's fitting your shoes may have been pulled from another department just to fill that slot, and they may know very little about fitting shoes. But if you can go in during the evening, your feet will be as swollen as they probably really ever are. And therefore, you won't buy shoes that are too small for you. And when you're measured, it will be when your foot is the largest that it will be. And it's always much easier to fill a bigger shoe than to make your foot fit into a smaller shoe. Uh, that can be painful and even dangerous. 
We'll get back to Dr. Fink in a moment. If you are a nurse, social worker, counselor, CD counselor, marriage and family counselor, or a psychologist, and like learning by listening, why not get credit for it? In addition to my Azure Institute online courses on aging and positive psychology, I have a brand new course, Anti-Aging Research and Therapies, What's Evidence-Based and What's Not. To get CE credit from the comfort of your home, just go to zurinstitute.com. That's Z-U-R institute.com. At the Zur Institute, you'll also find information on 140 other online courses and many helpful articles. That's zurinstitute.com. And now back to Dr. Fink. And you also said, don't assume your feet are the same size. Oh, no. I, I, I think as many as 20, 30% of people will have feet that are different by a size or so. And so uh, you always have to fit to the larger size shoe. So if your right foot happens to be a size 9 and your left is an N8, you should probably buy a size 9. So when you shop for shoes, do you ask the clerk whether they're a certified shoe fitter or you sort for that by going to better stores? How does one know? Well, I think that you look for the shoe stores that more or less cater to people that or cater to people with foot problems. And every city has them. In our city, the walking company does a very good job of taking care of people with uh, hard-to-fit shoes. In other cities, it may be quite different. And most of those stores will have people that are certified uh, shoe fitters. You'll know them because the prices are unfortunately a little higher. The people also approach you with a more professional way. And, And I think that it's pretty easy to find stores like that. If you go to one of the chains, like I don't know what no names, but one of the athletic shoe places, you're met by a 17-year-old kid. <laughs> that, that person is probably not a, a certified shoe fitter. If you care to, you can certainly quiz people and ask them. I think that for the most part, it's just a way of showing that this person takes their job seriously. And, and, and usually people can tell just by the demeanor of the clerk whether they take their job seriously, whether they're really professionals, or whether they're fairly casual shoe salesmen. Well, I would actually take it a step further. I, I think feet and having the right shoes are so important that it's worth a little extra money. And if somebody's having a problem, I would go right to a, a certified podorthist or, of course, to a, a podiatrist or a orthopedic surgeon and get the best possible advice. Your book said that the certified shoe fitters, probably a couple of days training and the uh, Podorthist, it's, uh, I think, about a 1,000 hours of supervision plus several courses. Yeah, and I, I think that you've got to be realistic about this. So I, some people, and I, I would I would guess perhaps even the majority of your listeners, do not have that kind of money to spend on shoes. And, and you've got to understand that uh, people, unfortunately, do not have an unlimited resources to approach these kind of problems with. You know, certainly, if you're going to go to an orthopedic surgeon, you're probably going to get very little help unless the person is a specialist in feet or to a, a podorthist or to a podiatrist. I think all of them are going to be able to help you. We all have our own kind of idiosyncrasies as far as what we believe works. Uh, and a lot of it, I would have to say, is, is just trial and error. you got to find out what works for you. I think that the amount of care you have to take in selecting shoes really is dependent upon how much problems you have with it. And certainly in my own practice, I have people with really horrible 
problems with finding shoes that are comfortable for them. And a lot of times it takes a lot of discussion, a lot of counseling, uh, and a lot of trial and error. My experience with the certified podorthist, I mean, most of them are primarily working with people who have diabetes or, or very serious problems, and they're selling shoes, you know, for people that don't have uh, extreme needs in the 100 to $200 range, and they're able to do any modifications that you need on the shoes. Sure. Yeah. I, I, and, but even even in that situation, there is some trial and error that's involved. A, a person that has a very difficult-to-fit foot or has special needs, the nice thing about going to a fedorthist is they have the machines, they have the equipments to modify and customize things if you need it. And I don't want to sell the podiatrist and orthopedic surgeons short. You still want to get a good diagnosis from them. And a lot of times, that's where you're going to get prescription inserts or supports. Exactly right. Much less bracing or something like that if you were to need it. Right. If you have something that you need to run through insurance, you're going to need a prescription from a a doctor, either a podiatrist or an orthopedic surgeon, in order to be compensated for that. And speaking of insurance, a lot of people who have diabetes and Medicare can get a good part of the shoe covered under Medicare. Yes. As a part of a congressional act, uh, people with diabetes that that fall under some fairly careful criteria, specifically they've got to have uh, circulatory problems or foot deformities or problems with ulcers in the past or nerve problems and diabetes that have a prescription for diabetic shoes as a part of an overall diabetes management uh, are qualified to to get their shoes covered. Traditional Medicare covers about 80%, which more or less brings the price of a diabetic shoe in line with what probably a normal shoe would cost if you bought it at a department store. We're talking with Dr. Brett Ryan Fink, who's an orthopedic surgeon in a private group practice in Indianapolis. He, along with Dr. Mark Stewart Meisel, is co-author of The Whole Foot Book, which is a very comprehensive, everything you want to know about foot care and shoes and bracing, and just very nicely done. Matter of fact, Dr. Fink, I used your book last night with my daughter. My 12-year-old daughter was complaining of vague foot pain, and I looked at her feet, and I didn't see anything wrong, and the pain wasn't acute. And so I literally had her read the page you had on growth pains and how they're very common for children 5 to 14, (laughs) and it allied some of her fears. Oh, how wonderful. That's why I wrote the book. I I hope that it helps. You do the day-to-day foot practice, and Dr. Meisel is a foot and ankle specialist who uh, has a strong academic background. Yes, Dr. Mizell was my uh, preceptor when I was in the end of my training when I was becoming a foot and ankle specialist. He taught me a great deal about feet and about the theory behind uh, some foot problems, uh, and I owe a great deal to him. He's currently uh, retired. As far as my own practice, I work at a community hospital in Indianapolis. I, um, I see patients on a, a regular basis. I'm a full-time practicing orthopedist. I do not, I am not a, uh, a university professor or anything like that. I just uh, take care of people's feet in a very personal way. So between you, you covered everything from the very practical to the very technical. Well, I try to add as much of the underlying problem. When I began to write this, 
I took the questions that my patients were asking me every day and I, I put them into each chapter. And these questions are asked of me time and time again. And eventually, I feel uh, after thinking about this and considering it, I've come up with some very good answers for this. And that's what I uh, put in the book. The website is wholefoot.com. That's wholefoot.com. It has information on Dr. Fink's practice. It's got his blog and information on the Whole Foot book. Uh, and just out of interest, I note that both you and Dr. Mizell are veterans. Oh, yeah. Uh, Dr. Mizell was in the Vietnam War. He was a helicopter pilot and actually was uh, injured as a helicopter pilot, and I was a doctor during the Persian Gulf War. Thank you for your service. Uh, greatly appreciated. Thank you very much, Dr. Berkey. Tell me about orthotics. When are arch supports helpful? Again, for healthy feet, I try to keep people out of arch supports and a good portion of what I see are children that are brought in for various concerns, mainly from their parents, about flat feet or feet that are in-toed or knock knees, bow legs, all that type of thing. I really avoid putting patients in orthotics. I think that like fairly constrictive footwear, that orthotic and cause the muscles uh, to decondition. This can expose the ligaments to more stress. In order to wear an insert, you've got to wear a fairly heavy shoe, a fairly large shoe, because they're the only ones that are accommodate this. And it really, I think, overprotects the foot. So for children that have flat feet, usually they grow up uh, into adults with perhaps flat feet that are uh, completely without pain. Besides, most children do not want to wear the shoes that an orthotic will fit into, and they don't want to be uh, unlike any of their peers. For adults, Orthotics can be helpful for certain problems. Orthotics are very helpful for someone with plantar fasciitis or heel spur syndrome. Orthotics are very helpful for someone with midfoot arthritis, for arthritis in the joints above the arch. They can also be helpful along with some modifications for someone with pain in the front of their foot. I do not think that orthotics are necessary or desirable at all for someone with healthy feet. My other belief, and this has been borne out in several scientific studies, is that satisfaction for any of these problems is the same with the non-custom orthotics as with the custom orthotics. Hmm. So unless there are fairly specific reasons that someone might not get as good results with a an off-the-shelf orthotic, I usually recommend them as opposed to the custom orthotics. If you look at these mechanically, there's really very little difference between what they make for you, a custom orthotic that may cost three or four hundred dollars versus something that you can, a good quality off-the-shelf orthotic that you can get from the drugstore, which may cost twenty to fifty dollars. So, like I said, fairly specific reasons that someone would need an orthotic or would benefit from an orthotic. And usually we start with the, the uh, more inexpensive ones because people can afford them. A lot of times they're not covered by insurance, and they seem to work just as well. I found it interesting that the way you describe interventions like types of shoes and everything, that you're trading off the stress from one part of the foot that's not doing so well to another part of the foot that can handle it a little better. It's not like there's a magic cure to this. And you're exactly right. Usually the trade-off is you may not realize it, 
uh, and this occurs in, in many parts of treatment of musculoskeletal problems, but there's always a disadvantage to the treatment. Uh, if you protect an area, you're also protecting it from the normal stresses that actually cause it to be more resilient. If you decrease the motion in one part of your foot, you usually are increasing the motion in another part of the foot. And so someone that's being treated for plantar fasciitis that gets put into a stiff-soled shoe, their Achilles tendonitis may get worse. Their ankle arthritis may get worse. Their knee arthritis may become more symptomatic. And so all these areas are interconnected. And a lot of times you're treating one at the loss or the worsening increased symptoms in another part. Of course, you realize in the soundbite world what the headline would end up being. Dr. Fink says, man up, go barefoot. <laughs> I'm teasing Well, I you. don't disagree with that. I wish, uh, I wish the world was more conducive to that. I wish our weather allowed us to do that. We would probably all be better. But uh, fortunately, the world is the way it is. And in Western society, I've got to wear shoes. I think everyone does. But it, I think it's, it's helpful to take breaks from this to... Uh, expose our feet to more natural stresses so that they can function the way that they were meant to function. Are Crocs getting closer to being barefoot? I think Crocs are very useful in a lot of things. There are certain circumstances where I have tried every intervention that I thought mechanically made sense, and people say my Crocs just feel as good. So I think that Crocs are good. The problem with Crocs is that a lot of times they're kind of loose so that they can suddenly slip on your foot and kind of make you misstep. It's kind of that stability issue that we were talking about with the ankle sprain. If the shoe does not stay firmly attached to the foot uh, and slips a little bit, it can actually be a dangerous situation. And we get into that sometimes with flip-flops because they can kind of twist on the uh, foot and uh, and you fall on them and, and twist your leg or something. So with flip-flops and minimal sandals, your biggest concern is that kind of instability or turning, not what it does to the bottom of your feet. It can't, yeah, it can be a problem, the ankle twisting. And if your feet aren't used to that kind of freedom, you can get overuse injuries too. There have been a couple of papers that were published on runners developing stress fractures after switching to minimalist shoes, and I think that's something to be concerned about. I think it just goes to show you that whatever you do, whatever shoe wear you transition into, it's got to be gradual and incremental. Sudden changes in the stress that your feet are seeing can eventually toughen them up, but over the short run, if the foot isn't ready for it, you can develop a stress injury, such as a stress fracture or tendonitis or some other problem. Uh, It's analogous to somebody who hasn't been exercising and says, I'm going to go get fit and starts lifting uh, or trying to lift 100-pound weights and then pays the price the next day. Exactly. If, you're, if your body isn't ready for it, 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 will, it can be, you can develop an injury because of that. And for the record, you wrote that the gadgets like bunion splits, uh, very few of them do any good. Yes, for the most part. I, I haven't found them very helpful. What should we know about bunions? There's a lot to know about bunions, and I would have to say that even after treating foot problems for 15 years or more, there are still a lot of things that I have questions about as far as bunions. I think that they develop as an instability of the foot, 
an instability of uh, a joint in the middle part of the foot called the tarsal-metatarsal joint, and instability of the metatarsophalangeal joint, which is closer to where the bunion's at. As one bone tilts towards the inside of the foot, the other one tilts towards the outside of the foot, and you get this prominence. Uh, what you may also not notice is that a lot of times the skin underneath the bunion also becomes smooth and soft because you actually put less stress on that area of the foot. Um, and so a lot of times that stress is transferred onto the second toe, which is right next to it, and that's why you develop problems with that second toe. Many people with bunions uh, have ligament injuries of the second toe so that they develop this this crossover second toe. It actually looks like the second toe is over the first, or they can develop hammer toes, mm-hmm. or even just pain in the other bones of the foot because of the bunion. Sometimes it's People come to me with complaints of a bunion, and really their primary pain is underneath the other toes of the foot because they have so much stress under that area. So once you have somebody using good posture and they've got appropriate shoes that fit well, what are the next most common interventions that you do with bunions? A lot of times it depends on the bunion because there are so many different things about a bunion that that can vary from person to person. Someone that has developed uh, a lot of instability in their first foot may start to roll their foot and almost look like they're having a uh, acquired flat foot syndrome and a, a fallen arch. Uh, in a patient like that, I think that orthotics can be helpful to kind of reestablish the stability of, of that side of the foot. In someone that is having pain just because they have a prominence on the inside of their foot, they need a shoe that doesn't push on their foot because if they were barefoot all the time, they probably wouldn't hurt because the upper portion of the shoe would not be pressing upon that. Uh, sometimes not lacing the shoe all the way down to the bottom will loosen up the toe box. Sometimes you need to choose a shoe with a, a more flexible toe box, something that is made out of a Gore-Tex or a spandex type of material. Sometimes when all else fails, you have to go to a bunionectomy or or a surgical treatment. But uh, I generally encourage people to try everything short of that. I have my own bunion. I, I wouldn't let anyone touch it unless, unless it was bothering me. The fortunate thing is it's never bothered me, so uh, I don't uh, plan on having it operated on anytime soon. If it did start to bother me, I, I'd certainly do all the things that I... Uh, recommended. Fortunately, right now, it, it allows me to wear just about anything that I want to wear. Well, Benjamin Franklin said the secret to a long life is to have some disease that you have to take care of, and Bunyan's probably one of the more modest ways to do that, I guess. Yeah, certainly my own foot problems have helped me learn a lot about what my patients uh, go through and have helped me think even more about what I can do to help them. With arthritis, you have all kinds of trade-offs. Could you talk about some of the trade-offs? Well, there are lots of different types of arthritis. There are many, many joints in the foot, and each one of them can become arthritic. As far as arthritis in the big toe, uh, which is a fairly common uh, symptom, usually what is happening is that the top of the joint is wearing out, and it limits the ability of the toe to come up. So someone with that problem may be successfully treated by using a shoe with a more rigid sole, such as a rocker sole shoe. It can keep them from having to force the toe up into positions that are very uncomfortable. 
a lot of times stretching the Achilles will help with that, as well as uh, stretching the uh, hamstrings. I think that doing exercises and drills that help to improve posture can help a lot with people with toe arthritis. It's the same with uh, midfoot arthritis. The joints on top of the arch that would be in what people call the instep of the foot can become painful, and that's extremely common as you get on into your 50s and 60s and 70s. It rarely requires surgery, fortunately, and arch supports using more rigid shoes are very helpful for those things, in addition to making sure that the Achilles and the hamstrings are stretched out and that people are using proper posture. As you get into the ankle, which is probably the next most common place for people to develop arthritis, stretching exercises for ankle arthritis are probably not a good idea. You're going to end up aggravating the ankle by trying to increase the range of motion. Once that you have fairly well-developed arthritis, trying to get more motion out of that joint is usually just painful. But usually the problem is, again, that people aren't able to bring their foot up enough, and as they transfer their weight over the foot at the very end of the step, it becomes painful. And someone that uses a heel pad to elevate their heel a little bit or chooses a shoe with a little bit of an elevation in the heel may be able to open up the front of that ankle and and to walk a little bit more comfortably. As far as other interventions like uh, injections into the ankle, I think that they can give temporary relief for someone that is having a, a flare, a sudden worsening of their arthritic pain, but it generally doesn't do anything long-term to the problem. Well, if I were looking for a podiatrist or orthopedist, I would look for somebody who talks about the kind of trade-offs and considerations that you do. And I'd add that you had two other criteria that you mentioned in the whole foot book. One, be cautious if the doctor is suggesting a lot of tests without explaining why. And secondly, uh, somebody who's quick to recommend surgery. Yeah, I, I think that someone that recommends surgery too quickly for a problem that is chronic, meaning that you just kind of developed, uh, should really explain why surgery is the the best initial treatment. Certainly, on occasion, I get patients that have been through multiple treatments in the past, have failed all of them, and sometimes surgery is the first thing that we talk about after finding out through their long history all the things that they've tried and failed. I, I don't have anything further to add. But if you come in with a problem that has not been treated before and your surgeon recommends surgery as the first step, you have to decide whether that really makes sense to you. There are effective non-operative treatments for almost any problem. They're not 100% successful, but uh, you never know who's going to benefit from them until they're tried. And you have to really be conscious of whether this is a person that's really paying attention to what you're saying to them, whether they're really willing to take the time to bring you through a a non-operative treatment regimen. Uh, non-operative treatment is not easy. For the doctor, it means that you've got to do a lot of patient education. That takes a lot of time. For your doctor, time is money. I mean, that's, mm-hmm. that's the, the nuts and bolts of medical practice is that we all love to have an unlimited amount of time to tr- spend with our patients, but we don't. And in order to stay viable, a doctor has to see a certain number of patients and hopefully 
he spends the time that each patient needs, but I don't think that's the case with everyone. That's another trade-off. Precisely. Well, the good news is that most people don't need surgery, and the good news is the Whole Foot book is just a, a wonderful resource. The website is wholefoot.com, at wholefoot.com, and we've been talking with Dr. Brett Ryan Fink, who, along with Dr. Mark Stewart Meisel, is co-author of the Whole Foot book. And Dr. Fink, uh, excellent advice. I appreciate it. Oh, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure, Dr. Brittany. Commentary. I was very impressed with Dr. Fink's holistic, very practical approach to foot care. To recap some of his key points, most chronic foot problems don't require surgery, and that's wonderful news. Improving posture often helps a lot. Choosing the right shoes is very important, including factors such as the stiffness of the sole, heel height, avoiding rubbing, and ways to adapt shoes to problem feet. Managing foot problems is usually about making trade-offs between stressing one area of the body versus stressing other areas of the body, which can include not only the feet, but also ankles, legs, hips, and even back. Transitions to markedly different shoe types or new athletic demands on feet should be gradual to build tolerance and avoid stress fractures or sprains. And for healthy feet, going barefoot is desirable as it toughens the skin and exercises all parts of the feet and ankles. You are listening to Ageless Lifestyles on webtalkradio.net and permanently archived on agelesslifestyles.com. A reminder that if you're a nurse, social worker, counselor, or psychologist and like, and like learning by listening, why not get credit for it? Just go to zurinstitute.com, Z-U-R-I-N-S-T-I-T-U-T-E.com, and check out my new Anti-Aging Research and Therapies, What's Evidence-Based and What's Not course. For information on my books, Defy Aging and 52 Baby Steps to Grow Young, my Anti-Aging Hypnosis CDs, personal coaching, and my keynote and seminar services, just go to notaging.com or drbricky.com, that's dr B-R-I-C-K-E-Y.com. I'd love to hear your comments and suggestions. Send them to radio at agelesslifestyles.com. This is your anti-aging psychologist, Dr. Michael Bricky, thanking you for joining us on our quest to live longer, healthier, and happier.